You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and connect with us on social media. That means like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and check out our YouTube page. This will help us, and that came, as always, with a please and a thank you. This episode is a fascinating conversation between three really good friends. That's Carlos Satch and myself. We start out by talking about alchemy, Eastern and Western, ancient and modern, and then go from there. We get a little bit out there in this episode, but we're just having a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Did I ever tell you guys the story of the very famous, he's the most famous herbalist in Chinese medicine history. His name is Dr. Zhang. Zhong Jing Zhang is his name. Okay, it's a great name. I love the name. Zhong Jing Zhang. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard this story. Uh, so he is credited. Now, he didn't actually like write this as a book. It was, you know, sort of reorganized and compiled. Compiled and from, from his teachings and his notes and things. But he compiled existed. and annotated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he existed a couple thousand years ago or something like that. And uh, during his time, there was a terrible um, epidemic that was going on. And they believe by today's standards, it might've been like typhoid or, you know, some, some cholera, you know, it was, it was different things going on at the time. Now, Dr. Zhang uh, is credited for writing this book called uh, Shang Han Lun. And that means um, the treatise on cold damage. And he was probably the first person in medical history that is recorded who was using substances, in this case, herbal medicines and some animal products and minerals and some things like that, you know, a Chinese herbalist. He was probably the first person in, in history to actually write a systematic approach for how to diagnose and treat and, and like have follow-up. Like the person has these signs and symptoms. This is a diagnosis. This is the prescription I gave. Um, it caused these side effects. This is what I gave them to counter that. You know I mean, like, it's like it's a, a case study. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was Early amazing. Case study. Yeah. This guy was amazing. Kind of like Dioscorides in Greece. Was yeah. Like that. In- incredible, incredible person. So, um, he actually was this incredible herbalist and something like a third or a half of his family perished because of this, this epidemic that was going on, which is a theme in, in, Chinese medicine history. Every time there's some famous doctor, there was somebody or family member or teacher or some person that was ill and nobody could heal them. And then this person went on a quest to learn more and they become, they became great. So anyway, there's all these incredible stories about Dr. Zhang. Well, this is a story that's worth hearing. Once upon a time, there was a man that came to Dr. Zhang and Dr. Zhang's main job was to be something of a judge. Okay, he was in the imperial court somehow, and he was like a judge. And he just did his, his herb thing on the side because that was something that you didn't charge for. Okay. And at that time, herbal medicine was pretty, in, pretty involved. They already had herbal pharmacies, and so the different doctors would write their prescriptions because they didn't take money for the prescriptions. They would give the prescription to the client. The client would go to the dispensary, 
this is 2,000 years ago, hmm. and fill the prescription. And they'd had all the herbs in the pharmacy and they'd put them all together. Okay, so this guy comes to Dr. Zhang and he says, well, Dr. Zhang, I, I hear that you're the greatest doctor in the land. And I want to see if you can cure my particular condition. And so Dr. Zhang looks at him and says, well, you, you appear healthy. Uh, what's your condition? Poverty. He says, I want to see if you can cure my poverty. So Dr. John goes, hmm, well, this is peculiar. Um, he asks him a few questions, have a little, little discussion. He says, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to need to sit down and talk for a while. He says, I might be able to help you. How much money do you have? And he tells him, well, this is how much I do have. He says, okay. He says, I want you to take that, go to the market and buy as many apricots as you can possibly buy and bring them back to me. Hmm. So the guy goes and he buys a bunch of apricots and he comes back and they sit down and Dr. Zhang loved to eat apricots. So the idea was we're going to eat these apricots and we're going to talk. And so he, he has this, this patient tell him his life story and the whole, the whole thing. And they had a heart to heart conversation and they ate the entire basket of apricots. He said, here's what you're going to do. He says, take these apricot seeds home. He says, and plant them. And he gave him instructions for what to do. And he said, and you leave the rest to me. And so the guy's thinking, oh, but come on, if I plant these apricots, then, you know, it's going to take years and years before they grow into trees and sprout apricots. And how much money are you going to make off apricots anyway? He says, you know, you leave it to me. So the guy goes and, and he plants the apricots according to the prescription. A short period of time goes by. And all of a sudden, Dr. Jong starts writing in all of his herbal formulas, a new ingredient. <laughs> the ingredient was the young sprouts of an apricot sapling. And all of the pharmacies came to Dr. Jong saying, Dr. Jong, what's this herb? We've never heard of this herb. We don't, we don't collect this. He goes, oh, you don't have that? Oh, well, this is the time of year. You must have it. I, I can't prescribe and treat my patients without it. Like, well, where do we get this? And he goes, hmm. He says, you know what? I know one person who has a bunch of them. You can purchase them from him. <laughs> and he cured his poverty. That's totally cool. <laughs> wow. And, and what I clever. love about that story, I know, what I love about that story is, is he did cure his poverty. He did do something to help him. Mm -hmm. And he did it, you know, with the creativity of something outside of his medical system. <laughs> That's really cool. I love it. So I have a question. Today in modern herbal theory, is is there a place for young apricot leaves or shoots or whatever? Is that a thing? Not that I'm aware of. No, we use apricot seeds the 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 um the the inner part of the seed that looks you like know, an you almond. Crack it open, it looks like an almond. Yeah, they use that. Yeah, huh. yeah, they use that. They use that for um, coughing. Isn't, isn't there a bit of cyanide in that seed? There is. It's in the peel, and they scrape the they they scrape the peel off, and then they toast the seeds. It's called Xingren, right? And and uh, it's if you translate that, it's like bitter almond because it looks like an almond. So they bitter say sweet almond. almonds and bitter almonds. I've so seen they, this ingredient yeah, many times. Bitter almond. And so they scrape off because they were smart enough back then to figure out that there was toxicity in the skin, which is where the majority of the cyanide How'd is. They figure that out. I know. It's amazing. So they scrape it off. Then they toast them. And then they crush them and then they add them to decoctions and it treats wheezing and coughing and things like that. And Dr. Zhang would have prescribed that many, many times. Do you think they crush, uh, they, they, they toasted it 
just to improve shelf life? I mean, does it really need to be toasted? Um, yeah, I think the toasting um, decreases the toxicity. So there's there's a whole uh, there's a whole system called How? called I mean, cyanide's a mineral, isn't it? Yeah, isn't well, it mineral? you know, there's I don't know. there's there's a whole system called powder in Chinese where they they prepare the ingredients to either enhance certain functions or to reduce negative side effects. Mm. You know, like, you know, you fry something like licorice. Yeah. You fry licorice and honey and it has a different effect than if it's raw. Well, and, yeah. and speaking of toxic things, you're reminding me of uh, cinnabar. Oh, cinnabar. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for those who don't know, that's um, basically mercury, you know, in, yeah. in a form that is an orangish red, orangey red color. Mm -hmm. um, and normally when people think of, of, uh, Mercury, they think of the silvery stuff inside the thermometers. Yeah. But the cinnabar, um, how is that collected? How do they collect it out in nature? Do you know? You know, uh, that is its own specialty. You know, you they go to school to learn how to find, harvest, prepare. You know, what's funny is it's the, the, the doctors. When I say the, the, the doctors, I mean like the Chinese herbalists. Mm -hmm they're not the people that are trained in how to collect those things. I mean, they oh. have some idea, you know, about those things. I think it's, I think it's mined. I think it's, it's a mineral and they mine it and okay. they, and they, they prepare it a certain way and they powder it. And Cause the, in the Vedic tradition, they have the bishmas, the, the uh, mineral ashes mm. that are cooked. They're alchemical preparations. Mm -hmm. Usually that's referred to as Siddha medicine. Okay. It's a kind of a branch of its own, uh, but in when people talk about Ayurvedic medicine, sometimes it's a broader term that can sometimes include things like um, the Unani medicine of Persia, as mm -hmm. well as Himalayan and Siddha medicines, because yeah. they get integrated because it's so many centuries of intermixing and things like that. So sometimes things have been absorbed, but they talk about these mineral ashes, and one of them is cinnabar. I don't remember mm -hmm. the Vedic term for it, but yeah, yeah, mercury. And <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much you know, it's pretty much illegal here. You know, yeah, we, we can't prescribe it. I've seen it, but when know. we were kids, um, oh yeah, the formula that um, our teacher uh -huh. brought back in that strange plastic octagonal container that he mm. had with the red top—I think I remember—and the little like spoon that. inside, uh -huh. or a little kind of a stick. Yeah, and we would take a spoonful on the tongue and then drink some tea. Yeah, and then go teach. And I just remember feeling strangely uppity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it really must have had some potent stuff in it. Yeah, uh, stimulant effect. I wonder what was all in it. Well, and it was that color. Yeah, he Probably seemed had to. Th he was. It was a secret formula, and that that formula is from the E family. And the E family was very into alchemy, so there's a mm. high probability that it had cinnabar. It in probably it. had cinnabar. I've taken it. Because, okay, you remember, it's a weird mint I didn't dirt. Take that. I didn't take that, oh. but I've taken cinnabar. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was a secret formula given only after being initiated in their secret group. Wow. You were given wow. this formula. That's, that's a lot of secrets. I know. Yeah, that's that's kind of cool. fun. Yeah, that is kind of neat. Well, but, you know, like in, in martial arts, dantian. Yeah. That means the cinnabar field. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's... That's what dantian means? Yeah. yeah. Elixir field, field cinnabar yeah, field. Field of cinnabar. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. Cinnabar yeah. in the in the broader term can mean like a like a cultivated elixir. It kind of it's huh. it's yeah. its own. It's like fluid 
essence. Like you've made your own cinnabar, you've cultivated yeah. your own. It's the it's the elixir herb. of immortality. Supposedly, if you could convert cinnabar, then that is um, a stage in alchemy that can wow. improve your health and Chinese alchemy extend your longevity and mm. give you power. Yeah. How much? Here's a tangent, and feel feel free to like refuse the tangent if you want. <laughs> <laughs> what? How much crossover? How much similarity is there between what I think of as normal or European alchemy and Chinese alchemy? Is are they the same at all? There's some crossover. Is the goal the same? Maybe the uh, the philosopher's stone, the elixir of life, immortality, that kind of thing. The as as I understand it from reading. Um, Palputsu back when I was 18. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Um, Palputsu was the guy who... Do you know Palputsu? I'm not sure. I don't think so. It, it's this alchemical treatise. I'll show it to you sometime. I have it. I have a copy. Um, it's a treatise by an alchemist, a Chinese alchemist, who went wandering through you know, rural China in, in search of teachers and... Um, an understanding of the magic and alchemy and the cultivation and some of the frauds, fraudulent things that he ran into, as well as some of the true things that he ran into, people who had reached various levels of skill with alchemy. Um, they have the um, Waija and the Neja version. So there's uh, Neja is internal family and Waija is the external family. So that means like, Nei gong is internal skill. Wai gong is external skill. Okay. Um, so the, the, the schools of alchemy um, that were all about external were, were actually working with the mineral ashes and the cultivated spagyric extracts and essences of plants and astrology and various magical uh, rituals and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then the neja family, the internal family of... Uh, alchemy schools were focused on interpreting the cultivation of yin and yang within the body through breath work, uh, sexual abstinence, and then uh, methods to open channels and create um, like a combustion within that would transmute jing, qi, and shen. So the three treasures... Essence, breath, Essence, and mind. Essence, breath, and mind, yeah. Those things were combined in, in a special methodology to cultivate the individual so you could become a what they call a shenxie. So it's, it's like a spiritual astronaut. Like, like you would cultivate your internal power so that you could travel the universe and live beyond your physical right. years. And you could, when you died, you didn't actually die. You just sort of pass out of your body. Your body would be extraordinarily long-lived but eventually would die. But what you would be living in would be kind of a transmogrified version of the body that was more solid than a spirit, but less physical than a body. So it was something in between. Hmm. That was the result of your alchemical work. So you would practice over years of cultivation to attain this immortal body, the, 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 the immortal fetus, right? That would be gestated within your practices until it became strong enough to exist on its own. And then of course, drink the energy of the sun and the moon only right. to live for thousands of years in this sort of uh, parallel dimension that could be 
here in the physical world sometimes. Wow. When does this movie come out? Because it sounds awesome. Sounds man. fucking awesome. I know it <laughs> no, does. You're drinking this, the sun and moon sounds delicious. It does. Oh, man. And it what also sounds similar Tequila to... Tequila Sunrise. Yeah. To, what, <laughs> to what I would think of as the two strains of, you know... In, in you know Western European traditions, magic and mysticism, like you had ceremonial magic yeah. where you externalize, you know, the what do you, whether you call them the elements of your psychology or whatever, things become external. Or there's like the meditation path where, you know, everything mm-hmm. is internal and, you know, metaphorical. Yes. Um, sounds like there's a lot of parallels there. Well, the, the Comte de Saint-Germain, uh-huh. right, is a Western version of an adept that supposedly or allegedly uh, reached a level of uh, alchemical mastery. And it's, it's unknown exactly how, but there are uh, texts and, and, and stories around it suggesting that it was a combination of the internal and the external work. Uh, Mm-hmm. But from what I've understood from reading Western alchemical treatises, um, many of them, not all of them, but many of them suggest that there's really no work possible without the divine connection. So, so in other words, right. that divinity which allows it is present in the work of the external alchemy. So when people are making spagyric tinctures and... Uh, separating the gross from the fine, as they say, right. uh, with a gentle heat, which is spoken of in the Emerald Tablet of, of uh, Hermes Trismegistus, Trismegistus uh-huh. uh, that that process is observed in a very sacred way, aligned with astrological um, occurrences and prayer and purification and special locations all combined in a special way to create yeah. uh, something that exists physically, but is also a spiritual and internal process that happens at the same time. And if all those things are there, you can actually make what would not happen if it were someone else just trying to mix those ingredients together. So it is a blend of kind of mystical experience, magical ritual, and uh, physical chemical uh, uh, exercises and and, uh, experiments. Wow, man, that's heavy stuff. I so know. it's like sort of like Western yoga, right? Combining all these things into one, you know, all-inclusive holistic package. Yes. Yeah, there I, were, I would call that yoga. Yes. You know, yoga means union, combining yeah. things, right? Yeah, the the you know Taoist yoga, the, the the Taoists that were trying to become immortals, a lot of them killed themselves by trying yeah. to take various poisonous, heavy metals and things like that. And so there there are a lot of stories of. People that, while seeking to live forever, they actually didn't live very long at all because they <laughs> yeah. damaged their kidneys and stuff like That's that. That's true with Western alchemy as well. Yeah. It's rife with stories of, of yeah. that. Um, I mean, hell, really, when you go really modern with it, um, Jack Parsons blew himself up. I was just going to say Jack Parsons. Yeah. yeah he's, he's, uh, let's, he's, let's talk about that. How did Jack Parsons? Well, he, he, he was, well, we don't uh, really know, right? We don't, yeah, we don't know all of it. We just know that he was, um, creating various rocket fuels in his basement back in the day when you could do that yeah. legally. American rocketry pioneers, one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yep. Okay. Jack Parsons. Yeah. Wow. Jack Parsons, AKA John Parsons. Okay. Um, and he was uh, one of Crowley's um, students, Alistair Crowley's students. And he was an acquaintance 
well, pretty pretty close acquaintance with L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard, yeah. Okay. <laughs> to be put lightly, close acquaintance. Yeah. Um, let's say they, they, they ate at the same dinner table, literally and metaphorically. Okay. Um, those who are in the know will, will catch that reference. But, um, he who has ears to hear. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, anyway, there, there's a, a book called Love and Rockets. I'm sorry, Sex and Rockets, and another one called Strange Angel. Right. That talks about this from two different angles. Right. And there's and a Netflix. Yeah, there was a show, Strange Angel. Yeah, Strange Angel, exactly. Which I don't know if it got renewed. Was there more than one season of that? I don't know, but I don't know why I forgot to look it up. I actually never watched that I show. I wanted to watch it, and I just never got around to it. I heard it was pretty it. good. Cool. I heard it was pretty good. Yeah, so little known history with our yeah. rocket program, but he was an, had an avid interest in alchemy. Hmm. Um, and he did, I think... What I've heard or read about him is that um, without his seminal works in, or say groundbreaking work in um, making rocket fuel, that they probably wouldn't have had the success they had as early as they had it. So he was pretty important because of what he had figured out. There is a, a limit to how powerful liquid fuels can be yeah uh, with standard combustion and things like that but but for the day it was pretty advanced wow. what he was doing well That's and he helped to develop solid fuels too, yes that they burn oh wow. wow and then of course they brought in dr werner von braun who was you know fleeing from <laughs> germany in the <laughs> nazi 40s wow. nazi naughties um but you know Science is science, right? So let's get them working wow. for us, I say. That's yeah. pretty cool. This has been a pretty cool tangent, Oliver. I'm glad you suggested it. I like mm-hmm. it. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty good. Yeah. But And so anyway, alchemy in Europe, you know, it's generally considered, if you look in like a textbook or a history book or whatever, I mean, the standard take on it is that alchemy is the forerunner of modern chemistry. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Which is true in a certain sense, but it was, you know, it also had... You know, some pretty different goals. Different aims, different goals. Um, yep. You know, Sir Isaac Newton was famously an alchemist, and the standard approach, the standard idea is that, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson will tell you that his alchemical studies got him nowhere, and it was his actual mathematical studies and physics and stuff that, you know, mm-hmm. that went somewhere. But how do you know that his alchemical studies didn't inspire him to, yeah. you know, create, you know, whatever he created in himself that allowed him to discover, you know, the, yeah. the laws behind the, you know, the motion of the planets and stuff like that. Yeah, right. This exactly. is the question. Yeah. That well, fascinates me too. And, you know, um, maybe he just didn't have the breakthrough. You know what I mean? It's like, you never know. Maybe somebody just was just one breakthrough away. Or yeah. maybe he did and he kept it to himself. That's true. Yeah. That is, yeah. that is another... Because maybe he would have been burned at the stake if he had <laughs> talked more about it. That's you know? right. That's yeah, another that's challenge with things mm-hmm. like alchemy is that most of it's written in code. Yeah. yeah. And unless you For have the key to the code, you can't really decipher it properly. And even if you don't have the initiated understanding of what the key means... Mm-hmm. You may be able to get the word, but you won't understand how that word's used. How that, so for example, when when we read ancient Chinese alchemical texts, there's all these symbols for various things like a tortoise and you know mm-hmm. a bamboo or whatever, and they may be the physical objects. They also may be references to something. Yeah. In other words, an associated meaning that isn't uh, literal. Uh, with alchemy, it's very difficult to know. Uh, Carl Jung was fascinated with alchemy uh, 
he interpreted it uh, looking at it from the standpoint, I think, of uh, internal alchemy. Yeah. So everything that he saw as external alchemy, he mostly read that and wrote about it as an internal metaphor that related to the human spiritual and energetic system because he was an esoteric person. He wasn't just a, like, that's a pet peeve of mine. People think Carl Jung just was talking about psychology when he was an avid spiritualist. Oh yeah. I mean, and an alchemist. He was interested in magic and spiritual sciences and psychic gifts. And he was absolutely open to that. I mean, like pissed off his mentor, um, Sigmund Freud, who they had a broken relationship in part because of his openness towards things like that. Uh huh. Yeah. And Sigmund Freud's uh, refusal to look at things like that—it scared the shit out of him. Yeah. That's 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 really something we 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 so so many people base the ability to get along <laughs> on <laughs> like the ability to have ideas. friendships and get along and you know you know like each other on these on psych psychology psychological principles and mm-hmm. two of the main guys that started it didn't even get along. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, there's some irony there. I'm just pointing well, that out. Yeah. I'm going to say that, that it's, it's probably no coincidence. I mean, it's absolutely related that um, Freud was highly interested in hypnotism early on. Yeah. And what he discovered made him terrified of hypnosis and he stopped doing it and focused on the psychoanalytic approach. Mm-hmm. And, he which, was, and he was terrified of the un- unconscious. You know? He was. Yeah, uh, he saw place. it as a very dangerous thing. Yeah. Well, you know, don't you think today in modern times, like the modern United States, we take substances all the time to try to enhance our life, mm-hmm. to make things better. For example, I, I, I dare I even say um, in the morning when you have a cup of coffee, isn't that kind of in a way trying to do alchemy? Aren't yes. we trying to wake up, enhance our experience, pay attention, get more out of life, focus better? You know what I mean? Isn't that in a way alchemy? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then I mean, make bulletproof coffee, even though that's even better alchemy. It is. Right. The, the, there's probably no other, you know, perfect way to put it is that you know, kitchen alchemy, you know, nutritional mm. alchemy. I mean, we are uh, attributing probably um, more to those things than most standard people would attribute. Like mm. I know those of us who are fascinated with biohacking and and who yeah. also love cooking. Uh, I think. Most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us have more of a romantic, uh, almost um, spiritual point of view about it. It's yeah. like we're open to the magic that could actually be happening as yeah. we make that coffee or as we make this, as I make my enchilada sauce, right? Absolutely. I put ingredients in there that are not what my family taught me to put in. Uh-huh. I put yeah. some of those in, but I add a lot of personal... Magic into that, and Carlos for me, it's El chemical enchilada sauce. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. P- people, yes. you need to understand, Carlos's enchilada sauce oh, is yeah, something special. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you look at it, it looks a, it's a little darker mm-hmm. than most enchilada sauces, yep. and nobody has ever had it without saying something extremely positive about it. Yeah, <laughs> it is an alchemy. It's good stuff. Um, yeah. But you know, even for me, um, at Ayurvedic school, you learn basic things as well, like like how to make ghee. Yeah, right. And oh, I've, I've made Because there's yeah, medicated ghee. geese and things like that. But when I make ghee, I, I step into my alchemy role. You know, I put on Vedic chanting, I burn some incense, I say some prayers, I align myself, and then I make the ghee. 
with the ingredients. And then as I'm making the ghee, I do think about the separation of the gross to the fine, the heavy elements sinking, the lighter elements uh, vanishing and evaporating and concentrating on the butter oil that's in the middle, the golden stuff, that, and then waiting for that moment of smell. I mean, you describe this in, in alchemical treatises. They, they do talk about various things that I'm mentioning right now, mm-hmm. like this, if the sense of effulgence will arise, and that's when you know that you need to lower the heat and you know, all yeah. these various kinds of things they talk about yeah. Um, which really stimulate the imagination, yeah. especially with all the wonderful uh, images and symbolic elements and mathematical relationships and shapes and colors and, and things added to the sort of underlying principles. Yeah. So, yeah, when I, I do you know, ghee, that's how I do it. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, sometimes I've, I've, I've even read in um, old books on Chinese herbal medicine where they might talk about, you know, the water that you should, you should use for this decoction should have been poured and re-poured a hundred times <laughs> before you, before you decoct it. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is just cute little, little things like that, you know? Well, we, 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 we do, we do it all the time. Like, you know, we start mixing ingredients, like how often, you know, it's how often have you, um, seen green tea with ginseng? Right. Why, why are we doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, I do need to point out to the world that yes. in Chinese medicine, green tea and ginseng are contraindicated to be used together. So I just want to tell that to all the tea companies that are putting tiny, minute amounts of ginseng in your green tea. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. Gre- green tea and ginseng apparently compete for absorption. So they tell you not to drink green tea when you take ginseng or you don't get the mm. benefit of the ginseng. It's like making a juice with kale and spinach. You know, spinach huh. is iron dominant and kale's more calcium dominant and it's different enzymes that break them down. So they say for ideal absorption, don't mix them in the same green drink. Whoa, I, you know? I didn't know that either. And if you want to enhance uh, the digestion of, of almonds, for example, you can add orange. I did know that because Michael D'Amico, thank you, Michael. He told me that a long time ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you can look at it. chew them, chew your almonds a lot. Chew them up. Um, and, and if you look at one of those uh, raw food charts that tells you uh, the relative sweetness and alkalinity and acidity of, of the fruits, you start to notice the difference when you mix certain fruits, whether you get gassy or not, you know, how you feel. Interesting, uh, yeah. So certain things are, are a better mix, unless you're just going for taste. But, but if you're going right. for um, digestive alchemy, <laughs> right. well, you think about alchemy, that stuff. Though, because you're talking about kale and spinach, you're talking about metals yeah. in these leaves exactly iron and calcium and minerals and stuff i yeah. mean that's that's interesting that's chemistry you know yeah. Pop, popeye the sailor man was a was an alchemist he was oh yeah Very good. he converted that spinach yeah it was iron and aluminum and you know it's, he was definitely transmuting his gene he was big time big for time. sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what he was smoking in that pipe though yeah, yeah. obviously something enhancing curiosity have you ever you probably have have you ever read the book the chemical wedding of christian rosenkreutz long time ago yeah what the fuck that is the most fucked up crazy ass weird book i've ever read in my life bizarre af it's yes bizarre af it's supposed (laughs) to be it's an alchemical it's one of the three main uh rosicrucian alchemical texts published in you know the early 17th century hmm 
um, early 1600s, you know. And it's just this weird-ass fable, and it's supposed to mean something. You can tell. They're trying to, like, tell you something if you can just pick up on the symbolism, but mm-hmm. it is just so convoluted and whacked out. Huh. Man. Yeah. The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. Check it out. Wow. Yeah. It's a trip. Right. That sounds great. Yeah. In a is. weird you way. Can, and you can download it for free off of several sites. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's a bizarre treatise. Um, That's cool. They say that... Um, I have heard that, actually. You have heard that, right? That, that's very profound. I mean, everyone's heard... Right? Yeah. yeah. Simon and Garfunkel did a song about that. They did. Yeah, the sound of... Got it. Um, why I paused was because I'm having difficulty remembering the singular word. I can remember the entire set of names, but for some reason the singular word that they usually refer to him as in short, I can't seem to recall at the moment. Refer to who as? This alchemist magician, very famous. Are you talking about Paracelsus? Thank you. Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. Right. Exactly, yeah. I have one of his treatises on my shelf. Yes. So I couldn't, uh, at the time, thank you for that, I couldn't remember, uh, um, again, Paracelsus. Apparently, I have a. Uh, <laughs> well, apparently, he got his name. His name was a moniker. There was an, a doctor named Celsus, a, a Roman doctor. I don't, I don't know too much about this, but he got this name because people said he was even better than Celsus. He was beyond Celsus. So he was like, he Paracelsus. ran circles around Celsus. Yeah. So he was para. He did. Celsus. Paracelsus. Well, para as a prefix means sort of like beyond, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, like para consciousness. Yeah. I like that term. Although it's, I don't use it often because people don't know what I mean. Paraconscious, P-A-R-A or P-E-R-I? P-A-R-A, right? P-A-R-A. Yeah, P-A-R-A. So there's... Um, and parapsychology, know. of course. We, yeah, we, subconscious, you know, there's unconscious, which usually refers to more or less the same thing. Um, right. I, I also like to say the paraconscious. Paraconscious. Or yeah. the other than conscious. That's dope. That's dope. I can dig or that. Or the super conscious. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Parrots are beyond other birds. Intra-consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The parrot consciousness. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very repetitive. It's for bird brains. Yeah, that's right, it does, yeah. But yeah. it never gets lost. It doesn't. Light as a feather. I saw, I, I, I read a story about this person who had a parrot, and the parrot learned all these words, and the parrot flew away, disappeared. And... Like some time went by, like, I don't know, like years went by and the parrot showed up again speaking Spanish. Wow. Isn't that cute? That's, <laughs> that's super cute. true story, really? Yeah, it's a true story. It was like a whole article I read about it or something. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah, so. Well, Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, otherwise known as Paracelsus, um, wrote a lot about alchemy, but most of his stuff has been burned and destroyed. Hmm. So I've read that he some maybe had like a thousand books that he wrote. That wow. could be an exaggeration, but regardless, if 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 it was a thousand, but that they say, but then he really wrote five hundred. That's still freaking impressive. That's a lot. Now, yeah. those books may be short. Some of them, man, many of them, might be really short treatises. But yeah. he he wrote quite a lot. He was very uh, prolific, um, and that most you know, I just know that most of his stuff didn't survive. Uh, right. Probably the church burning it. Mm. 
Thanks, church. Um, mm. But uh, oh man, the church. But, you know, I was yeah. thinking about the church today. The Catholic Church, you know, the, uh-huh. the European Church that basically spanned the Dark Ages, you know, the medieval times. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to criticize about the church. But what I was thinking was, I was listening to to some music, and as you know, a lot of the music that I listen to, I'm not a religious man myself, but a lot of the music I listen to is religious music simply because that's the music that existed at the time. That's what we have. Yeah, and 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 Secular wasn't music didn't survive mostly because they didn't write it down. The church invented musical notation. And and isn't there some truth to the idea that, you know, because the church was so big and powerful and had money that that ended up being, you know, how a lot of artists got employed. <laughs> oh yeah. Definitely. So, yeah. Definitely. Especially, you know, the decadent popes into like the sixteenth century, you know, they would just lavishly, you know, get mm. artists from all over the world or whatever, you know. Yeah. I yeah. feel duty bound to mention though, imagine what life would have been like if um, any number of, um, I would say, more enlightened approaches had survived. Yeah. Like the Druids or like the people in Alexandria, you know, the, the, where, where Hypatia lectured in university to people of different faiths and non-faiths. Right. You know, th- right. those, you know, libraries of Alexandria, you know, that, that, um, the three or four different versions of the libraries that it, that existed over time. Um, these cultures, if they had survived. Right. Yeah. It's fun to speculate about that because obviously whether you're religious or not today, if you're living in the West, you know, the, the Christian church has had profound impacts on pretty much every aspect of life. It has. Mm-hmm. An alternate history wherein, you know, the, the little cult of, you know, Christianity somehow fizzled and died. What would Europe have been like? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, where would alchemy be today if some other... I'm just kidding, of course, but... <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, where would our sense of connection to the ebbs and flows, the alchemy of nature and time? Yeah, you know, right. Time, which is really rhythm and cycles of rhythm. Yeah. You know, I read uh, about a study that was done recently that... I don't know exactly how they, they determined this, but but they were looking at uh, the human biorhythm mm. as far as the seasons go. Okay. And they had really good evidence, um, like, you know, some kind of, you know, chemical evidence that the human body does not recognize four seasons, but it does recognize two, late spring and late fall. Wow. Which is very interesting. So the human body has its own timing system and it responds and, and recognizes and relates to two seasons. Now, if you huh. were to apply this understanding, I wonder if it would open up a Pandora's box of interpretations yeah. when combined with some of the magical logic of traditional Chinese medicine mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, Ayurvedic medicine or even some of the Greek um, three humors, you know, mm-hmm. the Neoplatonic reconstruction kind of ideas about nature and... yeah. Yeah, medicine and all that. Well, I mean, just me personally, my own my own experience in life is, and I know others get this too. There is a time of year when the weather starts to change and you feel different, mm-hmm. yeah. and it doesn't last the whole rest of the seasons. Like you know, like I, if I think about it, it is probably like late fall. You know, uh, when I really start to feel that, oh gosh, oh, it's getting cold. It's mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a sense of right. excitement or or potential. 
It's associated with the ho- you know the holidays surrounding the winter solstice, uh, the, uh, the upcoming winter solstice, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. I mean, that's yeah. when the yeah. holidays are. That's just that's not arbitrary. I mean, it's part of the whole cycle of the year. You yeah, know? yeah, that does make sense. Maybe we're responding to that internal those sets of internal sensations that come along with those body changes of these different... Yeah, see, this is, this is where um, my mind wants to build this bridge between um, so-called scientific thinking and magical thinking. I wants to find this merger because I'm not comfortable letting go of, of um, what I strongly sense has value. Yeah, me too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, we did not survive as long as we did because of modern scientific thinking. We survived primarily because of magical thinking. And modern scientific thinking has catapulted us at light speed in some powerful directions. For sure. But it's also led to some increased problems that, that are our creation, right. not the creation of the planet. And, it, and it's not foundational to who we are no. as beings because it's so new, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, while I deeply appreciate and honor the power and respect the power that scientific theorems and hypotheses and testing hypotheses, the whole process of the scientific method, all of that I think is amazing. Yeah, man. But when you divorce it from any kind of um, introspective, uh, reflective, uh, at least a, an effort to connect it ecologically, and that could look like you know, a humanistic approach of trying to find ecology within that. You, that can look like a religious approach or it can look like a, um, something in between. But we don't have those strong qualities and impulses within us just because. I mean, they're, they're integral to our happiness. They're integral to our development as a human being, uh, development of compassion, development of, you know, I mean, yeah, can you develop compassion without a religious um, trapping around it? Sure you can. But that is one way to codify it is through um, stories and traditions and gatherings and various kinds of um, rituals and so on. These are ways to kind of uh, integrate the thinking and lock them into our our memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're a way to teach and transmit uh, systems of morality. Yeah. Which... You know, are, there are lots of just different systems of morality out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some are more holistic and tied to the natural world than others. Yeah. And um, I think maybe one of the things you were implying about Catholicism earlier is that it does seem to be a little bit divorced from nature mm-hmm. um, or from the cycles of nature or from our, I don't know, magical roots or whatever, even though it is fundamentally a magical organization. It I is. mean, the central ritual, is. the Catholic Mass, is a it's, it's magical magic. transmutation. It's alchemy. It is alchemy, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. it's like, um, I want to say it's magic divorced from its respect for duality. Hmm. Okay, I see you know what, what I mean? saying. There, there tends to be this uh, yeah. woefully strong emphasis on the masculine. Right. Well, because, you know, the Catholic uh, cosmology is um, that of imbalance. Light will win over darkness. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that light and darkness are in a constant but balanced struggle, this is known as the Manichaean heresy. But yeah, imbalance is a fundamental part of the Catholic or Christian cosmology. Because mm. the story is one day the good guys will win. Yeah. 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 And the story will be over. And it... Yeah. 
and somewhere along the way, an evil was done by a woman that twisted things, and we've been suffering ever since. But one day, exactly, light will win again. Yeah, and therefore implying that the female is dark, which well. If you look at that from a yin yang standpoint, that makes yeah, sense. It makes you know? sense. Just yin, without without the judgment. Without the judgment yeah. <laughs> around, yes. You know, darkness and light yeah. just as contrasts to one another, yeah. not as absolutes. But yeah. um, that's the that's the thing that um, goes back to how we interpret things. I mean, ideas about yin and yang, and ideas about chi, and ideas about uh, magical elements often get misinterpreted because they're underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't tell you enough about it to give it context, and so therefore it sounds ridiculous. And therefore, what's the point? And why would anyone spend? Why would anyone would ha- with two brain cells want to spend any energy learning about it? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, there's all those stories. A, a pretty pretty big part of our Western kind of storytelling mythology as mm-hmm. a whole mm-hmm. is that the idea that at one point magic left the world. Right, you see this idea, it happens in the Arthurian legends, you know, it happens in Tolkien, mm-hmm. the idea that there used to be magic, mm. but it's sort of fading away. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of true. It's yeah. almost like history. Yeah. You know? it, it also kind of reminds me of um, just growing up. You know, there's the magic of childhood and, and yeah, sure. children always exist. Yeah. And so there is magic in the world. This is the Peter Pan you know? story. It's Peter Pan. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then at some point there's a transformation and... And the magic is gone. Not you know what? Fun. You know how you said there was two seasons. Well, I think I just um, just tonight I'm experiencing this fall season because mm-hmm. this is the first time I've been cold in a long time. Ah, oh. hmm. I just realized I'm like, what's going on with me? And it's like, oh yeah, I'm cold. I haven't been cold in months. This, it's been hot lately. It feels yeah, nice to be cold. It does. I know. I'm, I I prefer it. I, I like the cold. Not too yeah. cold, but yeah, me you know. too. Yeah, I'd rather bundle up. Yeah, uh, than. Yeah feel like I can't strip down any more than I am. Yeah. Take off your skin. Well, Take know. it off. Yeah. Yin, um, yin and yang, hot and cold. But, you know, to, to revisit something that we were talking about, I realized that I, I, I diverged a little bit. But what I was going to say is that um, imagine if you take away a lot of the distractions, you know, there's this wonderful documentary, The Social Dilemma, which talks about, you know, all the social mm-hmm. distractions we have and how dangerous it is and what, why they're so sticky and so on. But like, imagine you took away a lot of that, but you had the same, you know, ability to group together intelligent minds who had enough of a balance of mind that they could engage in, let's say, cognitive strengthening practices like meditation and healthy exercise and breath work. And they could begin to explore sensation at a very, very deep level. And you'd have different schools kind of focusing on different things. I'm almost being reminded of Dune here, you know, that you get these different branches of humanity that can specialize and develop and perhaps even over time uh, cultivate a genetic predisposition because it goes on for a thousand generations or whatever so that we do get something quite different in our evolution um, but where each guild, you know, to use a Dune term, has enough respect for the other that it recognizes that they're of equal value, just in a different area of life, where would we be? Would mm-hmm. we be able to have the magic that is supposedly gone in the legends? Would we have that magic again? Mm. Um, would that be? I, I, I strongly suspect that we would, even if we did it in a single generation, not even thousands, but what could be 
potentiated over th- a thousand generations. Wow. Right. Well, mm. that's in, fun. In, yeah. From my perspective, in order for that kind of you know uh, divergent evolution to occur, populations would have to be separated from each other, which is something that's happening less and less in this world. But if we become an interplanetary civilization, this could definitely happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Good point. It'd be yeah. like Darwin's finches. You know? Well, we yeah. are getting a lot of interesting news these days. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have. Uh, the Pentagon and the U.S. Navy all but um, but admitting that there are UFOs. Uh, they're trying to kind of leave themselves a little bit of a backdoor, a side door exit by saying, well, you know, just because they're um, unidentified uh, aerial phenomenon or unidentified flying objects or whatever, that it doesn't necessarily mean it's a saucer from another planet. And that's I, I agree. It doesn't mm-hmm. always necessarily mean that. We could have parallel dimensions existing here. We could have uh, a race of highly advanced people that have been so far ahead of us that we cannot detect them until one, except for once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, of course, it could be military aircraft that are secret and could be publicly known. Although we've been seeing very similar reports for at least 100 years. So that's probably unlikely. Yeah. And there's um, the movie Cowboys and Aliens. So there you <laughs> yes. go. Well, right. because there, there yes. are reports from that long ago. Yeah. There are even photographs. Yeah. From that long oh, ago. Oh wow! Yes, well, and sometimes you see like cave drawings or ancient manuscripts with things that really look like yeah. aliens sitting in a spacecraft. You know? Yeah, I wasn't mm-hmm. even going to mention that because I was just thinking about there's no, you know, at least with a photograph you can say, well, that's modern technology. But you're right. I, there's absolutely that and religious references and, I mean, the the, the Sumerian texts that that refer to this, like, like it was common knowledge, mm-hmm. like in multiple. Uh, cuneiform uh, texts, you see it all over the place. It's referred to as like it's a given that we had mm. the, you know, the Anunnaki. Mm-hmm. The what? What's that? The, the Anunnaki. Anunnaki or the, Anunnaki. you know, the, the, basically the star people that came and they had a, their own epic, you know, Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh and talks about... Um, uh, oh, this is from the Epic of Gilgamesh? Yeah, Ek- oh. Enki and Enlil. And, Enki do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and they, they had this interaction, the, the sun, Marduk, and it goes on and on. But they were identifying again. things that we still don't really understand fully. I mean, they identified certain things, planets in our solar system that yeah, you couldn't see with a telescope. Well, and how um, did the Dogon tribe know that Sirius was a binary star system? Yes. Apparently there's no way of knowing that without, I mean, we didn't prove that until, you know, modern times. Yes, Mm-hmm. Just, there's just far too many examples of Those this. Dogons. Dogons. <laughs> Dogon it. Um, but they, when, when we see this kind of thing being admitted, I think we're being desensitized. Uh, this is my theory, that we're being desensitized um, as, a, as a psyop to allow for uh, the maneuverability of government decision-making without... A great protest. They do realize that if if they suddenly claimed that there were aliens, that there would be a strong religious uh, resistance that would come up. They would say, "Oh, this is the sign of the end times." They would interpret this as um, a sign that Lucifer is controlling things, and therefore we need. To, and so they, there would be this huge schism um, that would be worse than the schism we're already experiencing. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why they've been hesitant to admit these things. And another reason, of course, is that I believe it's of strategic advantage to know more than your enemies. Sometimes I feel like them 
just not releasing what they have and just being sort of tight-lipped about things is because the truth is even stranger and more fucked up than the stories people are making up. You know I, what I mean? have to agree. Sometimes <laughs> it's like, okay, let's just let them believe that. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, governments at all times in all countries all over the world forever have always done fucked up shit. I mean, yes, and hidden it. Right? I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, it's... It's not conspiracy theory. It's 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 just conspiracy. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The idea that in our time and place right now, our government is not doing anything nefarious. Yeah. Is such an outlandish claim. I would say that would require some. You know, they say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say you would need some extraordinary evidence for the extraordinary claim that there is nothing nefarious going on. Yeah. Bingo. Nailed it's it. Always, what Will said all over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can think of uh, of an individual. Um, who's very intelligent and schooled in in uh, cognitive things that I study, you know, who who literally said point blank to me at one point, um, you know, I just believe that, uh, you know, everything that, that you hear from these government, it's pretty much at face value. It's pretty much that's what it is. Like there, there's no hidden agenda behind anything and there's no, I don't, I just don't believe that about, about it. And, and I, this is a person who I shared quite a lot of articles that um, showed very clearly that there have been court cases over this, that there's been uh, this person or that person who's come out and had admitted it. Uh, and I'm referring to a variety of things. Yeah. Basically, I'm referring to things like conspiracies that were actually busted, mm-hmm. you know, things that mm-hmm. where it became clear, like MKUltra. I mean, that's not, that's not a lie. It happened and it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, paperclip, uh, artichoke, all these other CIA operations or um, things that never got off the ground at all, like uh, the Northwoods, Operation Northwoods, where they were planning. a lot of things to Google in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Northwoods was where they were actually planning to um, do a false flag um against America. So we were planning as a Pentagon plan, uh, hatched in the Pentagon think tanks, uh, to do a false flag operation where, um, Middle Eastern terrorists were framed, uh, or used to pilot planes to crash into the empire state building. Does that sound slightly familiar? I wonder why that is. <laughs> um, of course you could argue, well, but they never hatched that plan. Mm-hmm. Yes, but why are they spending time, you know, all that time yeah. and energy creating a, a, a very specific plan to do yeah. a false flag operation on our soul, soil, blaming another country for it? Mm-hmm. So On our soul as well. On our soul yeah. and our soil. Yeah, yeah. Our um, yeah. <laughs> soiled souls uh, <laughs> who are thinking of that. Um, so yeah, so what does that mean? It just means to me that there are a whole lot of uh, hidden elements going on at all times. So it's not that crazy to, to, to think about and wonder like, Hey, maybe this is going on. Maybe that's going on. I think where people lose it in conspiracy theories is that they, they believe everything they read that sounds plausible. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to read those things with, um, an understanding of, uh, that you must maintain the question all the time. How do we know if this is true or not? How reliable is this information? How likely is this to be mm-hmm. uh, based upon what I know? And can I accept that I will understand the entire construct 
but never know whether it's true or not. Yeah. Can I hold on to that? Because if I can't, it's going to make me crazy. I just need to like, I have to believe it. Well, right. that could be dangerous. Right? If you're not comfortable yeah. with uncertainty, then you're really tempted to just like superimpose some certainty on things that, yep. you know, there isn't. Yeah, which could cause you to either exactly. believe that everyone, you know, everyone in the government are shape-shifting uh, reptilians from another dimension, right. trying to suck your soul and vampirize you of energy, or... Exactly. You could decide that you know everything that the government says is at face value, and there's no ulterior motives whatsoever. They're just trying their best to make things better. Right. Either one of those extremes <laughs> is possible when you are uncomfortable with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good advice for anybody who um, has interest in these topics or has no interest in these topics. Yeah, is to just go into it with this idea of. I'm going to look at it as fascinating, interesting, exciting, mm-hmm. potentially scary, mm-hmm. and be just be able to hold on to that and yeah. wait. And then and just see what happens over time and just remain curious. Yes, and know that you don't have to. You can also mm-hmm. skip it all together. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you don't have the mind and the heart for it, um, I personally would recommend that you don't. Because you can, you can just skip it. You can do that. You can just skip it. Just don't worry about it. You can say, you know, you can do the DNA. Do not answer on the phone. You know, um, put your hand out. Like, yeah, that's the that's the thing. Is like right now, what are we going through? Pandemic. Uh, what are we surrounded with? Uh, a lot of uh, mixed feelings. It's yeah. it's the system that's that's uh, influencing all of us right now it's on a the planet. Lot of uncertainty right mm-hmm. now. A lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uh, rage and anger and schisms happening. There's a mm-hmm. lot of uh, conspiracy theory, and there's probably a lot of actual conspiracy going on. But and there's a lot the of conspiracy denial behavior, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. And so, uh, if we get exposed to these sticky viral ideas, um, and we don't cultivate um, critical thinking and we don't criti- um, cultivate the ability to stay um, really clear inside of ourselves with our objectives, then it's very easy to kind of fall into the emotion of it either way. Mm-hmm. And so like uh, my personal choice with all this is to stay, um, is to stay in a space that I can still respect tomorrow or 10 years from now to try my best to say, Hey, you know, rather than buying into every theory about what's going on, just do what seems to be the safest, follow what I feel, Mm -hmm. uh, I've developed as kind of like a healthy attitude around it, which, which includes some skepticism. Mm -hmm. Like I don't necessarily, uh, believe everything I hear even from official sources, but I'm also asking myself, well, how dangerous would it potentially be for me to violate this or that suggestion. I mean, to me, wearing a mask is not a huge ask. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable. I'm not 100% convinced that it's making a huge difference or even very much of a noticeable difference, but it's not a huge ask. As Tony Fauci said, you know, it, it's, it's not about whether it works or not. It's a, it's a symbol of, of compliance. And that's a direct quote. Uh, well, the first part might not be, but the part where you said it's about compliance, that's a quote. Um, and well, I can accept that. social dilemma, though, because the, the mask really doesn't protect you. It protects the other people. Again. Mm-hmm. Um, For the, the most part. 
that is the argument, but right. and, I've but also it, seen counter arguments to that, that it doesn't. But I mean, that's the generally accepted um, science. Anyway, it, yeah. it's like an interesting social dilemma though, because yeah. people that are selfish, I mean, it, they don't care. They're, so they're you know, not wearing a mask is a selfish act from that perspective because you're not protecting yourself, you're protecting the others. And if I'm, if I'm hanging around people and they're not wearing masks, then it doesn't really do much good for me mm-hmm. to wear one. Right. Because it's for them, you know? And they obviously don't care. So it doesn't make sense to be more careful than the, than the group, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, like you said, Carlos, that it, it isn't a big ask. Yeah. And, so I wear one. Yeah. And, and the research on it is mixed, but you, know, you can make the argument that um, logically speaking, here's how I look at it. If you put on a mask and somebody's smoking a cigarette, chances are, I mean, unless you really have a proper N95 mask that's measured to your face and fits the way it's supposed to fit, mm-hmm. you're probably going to smell smoke, mm-hmm. which means some smoke is getting through that mask, but you're not going to smell as much smoke, right? If you wear a mask and in the same way, if it decreases your exposure to a virus and you get less of the virus and still get sick, less gives your immune system a little bit more of a chance to respond. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so um, it's, you know, how much it helps, hard to say. Might it help? Potentially. Um, uh, but it certainly doesn't really hurt you know, to have it on. Yeah, and, and, yeah. It, and it makes other people feel comfortable. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's and something. And, you know, to loop that back to magical thinking, mm-hmm. pause for emphasis, um, it could be that, um, the placebo effect, uh, is being, you know, harnessed to our benefit. Yeah. Yeah. That it's true. okay. Because if, if placebo effect even, even creates a 20% decrease in cases, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. What if, what if all this mask wearing has decreased the number of regular flus? And there's that a few be people that are, that are alive. It probably will. You know, so, so there you go. So it's, yeah, I mean, it, it this is a hard thing because, you know, we don't have all the data in front of us and, you know, we're not scientists mm-hmm. or whatever, but, you know, I, I just, as a layperson, I have a hard time because I see um, that there are studies that go both on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Totally doesn't work at all completely. And no, no, studies are showing that it actually helps and it's really, really good. And it's doing, I see both sides of that and going, well, I could actually question who's funding the research. Mm-hmm. And I could look on both sides of that equation and point out uh, axis to grind. It's not like the, the weight uh, is greater on the side from my perspective mm-hmm. of, well, you know, everyone that says that you shouldn't be doing it, they, those are all um, right-wing propaganda mills. No, actually, many of them aren't. It's just that how many people actually spend time searching for the exceptions? Mm-hmm. What people tend to do is say, I don't have time for that. I just want to go with the basic news bites and follow that. So the news bites mm-hmm. say what most people are echoing, which is mm-hmm. that any counter information is just coming from ridiculous right wing propaganda mills. Stupid truth always evading simplification. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. It's, it's, it's I mean, to, to jump a little lateral chunk here uh the whole fake news idea okay we're surrounded by fake news these days right and everything's fake news and it's it's the most you know 
it's the easiest thing to throw out there. You can just kind of invalidate everything that was just told to you by saying, you know, it's fake news, right? Right. But, you know, it's complicated by the fact that there is, there's a lot of fake news there shows is out actual there. There's comedy fake news. shows, though. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fake news is funny. John Stewart, you know, kind of started that whole thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. Loved it. Yeah. And yeah. there's, there's, it's a gradient. There's like a spectrum of how fake, there's news with a little bit of humor. Mm-hmm. Like there's John Oliver, who seems, you know, at least from his perspective, it seems like he's trying to, like, I mean, he's got an axe to grind, but he's getting deep into subjects. But there's, you know, some F bombs, a little bit of humor. And then there's somebody that's mostly humor, just a little bit of news, like SNL, you know, Weekend yeah. Update. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get lost in the spectrum sometimes. Yeah, well, got, there's like, the editorialism, you know. Sure you have the, exactly. the uh, well, you have the Bill Maher folks. You've got the, um, who's the, the guy who used to be at Fox, Bill O'Reilly. Oh, O'Reilly. Right? O'Reilly got fired, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and eventually. And then there's Hannity, of course. Yep. And then uh, Hannity, right? That's the same side, same right, yeah. same network. Yeah. But then you've got the uh, Keith Olbermann and the Rachel yeah. Maddow. Keith are... Olbermann, man, that guy was mad. That guy was pissed. He was. Remember those rants he used to do? Those, those early rants, rants were, were phenomenal mm. to listen to. In like the, yeah. But when you do a truth uh, seek on it, you realize, okay, um, this isn't a black and white issue here. He's made some gross errors as well mm-hmm. yeah. in his argument. There's like, you know, you can shoot holes in both yeah. both sides of the argument. I tended personally to align myself more with the Keith Olbermann bent than I did the Bill O'Reilly. I wanted to smack Bill O'Reilly, but... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, did you see him interview Marilyn Manson? Uh, no. Because Marilyn Manson just hands him his ass. I mean, because he's such a, such a good debater, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. really he's a master him. debater, isn't he? I think I think probably yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm a I'm a big fan of um, masturbating. Oh, now that you mention it, okay, no, <laughs> I was gonna say. Um, remember uh, when the Surgeon General got fired for saying people should masturbate? Yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, that was that, 80s, right? yeah, well, that was that was, was that post uh, um, Doctor Ruth. Well, you know what that was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was. Um, I met her actually. Yeah, she, she he met a wonderful woman. Did yeah. she recommend? Uh, uh, it was it was one of those things that was. Um, <laughs> yeah, she said masturbation very, is good for your health. She did. Yeah, uh, yeah, but it was it was. There's data. I mean, come on. Somebody asked her a question, and her response was, "Well, you know, like like should should, should masturbation be taught or something?" And I think oh. I think her response was, um, "Well, it's part of the human sexual experience, so yeah, it should be taught." It was it was a very reasonable yeah. thing, and then of course they took it and ran with it. She was the surgeon. She was the first black female surgeon general, and, and they canned her for that. Incredible person, That's fucking ridiculous. Here, I, let me get her name. I met her because she was the keynote speaker at one of our commencements. Wow. Um, I say give that woman a medal. There should be a masturbation class in high school, <laughs> sophomore year, you know, or maybe just a, a week, you know, put it in in the health and safety class. You know techniques. You know, you could learn a lot. Yeah, you were. Well, we were speaking about Jocelyn Elders. Jocelyn Elders, okay. and very nice woman. I had like had had a chance to just say hi to her, and she was very very nice. Nice name. Very well spoken. Nice. She she's fascinating too because um, way back, way back in the day, you know, you look at her age. You have you have a a, a black female mm-hmm. who became like the lead physician at the hospital in her department, leading all these white male doctors. I mean, she was a smart individual. Wow. All becomes a surgeon general, but, you know, I guess had to step down because of the media. No match for the media. You know, you're just going to get pulled out of the media. But anyways. Yeah, they can crucify you if they want to. Yeah. (laughs) 
Even the stuff that we've said in this particular discussion, um, you could probably take sound bites and just, I know, make me sound like I'm a fucking wingnut. Yeah, just right there. I'm a fucking wingnut. Right. I'm a fucking wingnut. I'm yeah, a, you know, you totally. can just do that again and again. I mean, it's super easy. You know, you just, you focus in on what sounds a little bit edgy and that is our, our show is a little bit on the edge. So mm. of course mm. it's going to be easy to find comments yeah. here and there to, to blow out of proportion and take out of context and to place within a context that uh, contrasts it so strongly that people um, will view that frame as an indicator of yeah. bad things. We'll just hire Marilyn Manson to represent us in court. Oh, that's we'll, true. We then could we'll always win. do that. Yeah. So, yeah. This is why it's not a good idea to just read the headlines, which so many people do. Yeah. People get their news by scrolling and they catch glimpses of headlines. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah. If yeah. you, I mean, almost invariably the headline, if not misleading, at least doesn't tell the whole story. You yeah. know, I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. And, and it's also uh, interesting that what you're read, you know, the surface of what you're reading affects your neurology. So, if you're looking at a screen, people are more likely to skim okay, in order to find right. what validates what they already know. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at paper, you're more likely to read for the purpose of learning. Makes sense. And so, since mm-hmm. news media is mostly like clips on social media and it's it's all skim worthy. You just see a headline, do a quick skim. You it's see something skim. that validates what you already know, and you haven't learned anything. It's all yeah. skim, man. Fucking yeah. 2% milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the echo chamber Yeah, yeah. In, in effect. I would love for people to be more open to exploring ideas rather than so sure of their position that they right. are just working to confirm themselves by denying your points by finding mm-hmm. ways to, instead of looking for what might be value of value there mm-hmm. um, and maybe getting curious and asking, well, you know, why do you believe that? Yeah. I, I always feel that that's way more effective if you're ever going to um, persuade or convince someone is just find out more about why they feel the way they feel. Mm-hmm. Stop trying to disprove them in every two yeah. seconds, you know, yeah. every juncture. Yeah. Find out. It's ineffective. Yeah. It's ineffective anyway. You know, so <laughs> don't even try. I mean, I, like the things I said tonight, like about UFOs, these are just, they're just things that I, like I'm leaning towards believing this because I have enough cumulative um, experience. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I'm married to the fucking idea. Right. I mean, if it's proven that those things were false, I'm not going to sit there and, and pull my hair out over it. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. That's bizarre. Right, exactly. I'm just going to accept that. We're but always it's learning, right? And I mean, you know that I'm a little bit more skeptical than you about UFOs. Yeah. But when you start talking about it, I don't run screaming and put my hands over my ears. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, well, let's see. You know, let, let's see where this goes. Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes it goes interesting places. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. I'm very excited and hopeful that Bigfoot exists. Mm. I'm a big fan of Bigfoot, but it's okay with me. If Bigfoot doesn't exist. Yeah. But it would be so cool if Bigfoot did. It would be cool. You is know? Bigfoot the same as Sasquatch? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are they the same? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a uh, an ape like creature. Right. Here in North America. That's and not like the a, same as a Yeti. Like a Yeti, yeah. Similar you? to a Yeti, you know, a y- Yeti. And what's is, the other one? There's a there's a uh, more of a the abominable snowman? No, that's, that's the, Yeti. the Yeti. There's the um there's the, the orang pendek. What is it called? The Orang Pendek. Orang Pendek. Yeah, which Pendek. is like in like, I don't know, like the Vietnam, stinking, you know, yeah. That, that, oh that area. Gorilla or whatever. And there are actually reports of American soldiers coming across 
kind of like short hominid apes in the jungle when they were fighting in the war that were kind of hard in to explain. what, the Vietnam War? Yeah, the Vietnam War, yeah. Huh. It's like a shorter version of, of the North, like the North American one's supposed to be like, you know, eight, nine, ten feet tall, and theirs is like short, like, you know, five feet. It does make feet. you wonder whether or not there were, um, you know, groups of ancient humans that branched off and just kind of bred in the forest. It's not that crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, because in a place like yeah. Vietnam, I could imagine them just kind of being like, ah, whatever, they're in the forest, just leave them be. Mm -hmm. People um, have this emotional attachment to the sanctity of like homo sapiens, you know? Yeah. Even yeah. it's like a subconscious thing. Even if you are not a creationist, you, there's still, it's hard to give up the idea that, okay, here we are, we've arrived. This is some sort of end point. Yeah. You know? We yeah. finally reached this level. We're, we're not at an end point. Right. Oh, not even. That, that, yeah. I don't think that exists. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they, the Neanderthals and humans ex coexisted for a long, a long time. time. Many of us have Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, and, and we do. We do. Yeah. And we coexisted a long time. There are the Deniz Denisovans and all kinds of other similar, right. you know, humanoids, you know, that were, and that were around there. Speaking so. about out there ideas, uh, Buckminster Fuller, who's generally considered to be a genius, believed that dolphins evolved from humans. Oh, the other he, way. He wrote a lengthy discussion hmm. of this. Wow. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. So would that mean that dolphins are an improvement over us? Because if they evolved from us, then they're leading, you know, leading the way, you know? Well, they have music yeah. and language. Yeah, and they, and they have games. a great laugh, and they yeah, surf. They yeah, yeah, and they play so, games, and they get high. Yeah, I know, and they and they. Uh, they what do they get high on? Uh, Pufferfish. Oh, really? Dolphins yeah. get high on pufferfish, and fish? they pass it around the way we pass joints. <laughs> Dude, stop bogarting that pufferfish. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> they get totally high from it. They they pass it back and forth amongst their friends and hang out, and then get playful. They must have figured out dosage too, because I assume you can OD on pufferfish. Maybe, although their body weight's so much greater than ours that it wouldn't. I wonder if there are dolphin alchemists. Take more. Yeah, I want that's a dolphin alchemist trying yeah. to save the ocean or ruin it. Well, I and, don't know. It's, you know, according to what I read about um, extremely low frequencies and whales, when there weren't a lot of um, industrial ships creating the sound pollution from sonar and various things, I think it was gray whale or sperm whale. I can't remember. The large, very large whales um, could hear each other from the opposite side of the earth. Wow. So they were that sensitive and those sounds that they could do, just oh, those man. big, long, extremely low frequency waves could travel and spawning was much easier because they could sense other groups mm. very far away. Wow. I can imagine a whale could make a really low sound because it has such a large vibrating, you know, mm -hmm. cavity. Yes. Yeah. And the land whales, a.k.a. the elephant. Mm -hmm. Land whales. Yeah, I call them that just for fun. Yeah. But um, <laughs> they also produce extremely low frequencies they do. that yeah. they can sense through their paws, their feet or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And they're very sensitive. I don't, I don't know, but but they they uh, and it goes for hundreds of miles, I believe. Yeah, they can sense other tribes of 
elephants or packs of elephants, whatever they they can. Yeah, yeah. And so. remember, I, we, we talked about this on another show. Is there was there was that story on Animal Planet about the little girl in Thailand who was on the baby mm-hmm. elephant every day, mm-hmm. and one day it took off running and she couldn't stop it because it was running away from the tsunami that was coming and it saved her life. That's so such a beautiful because it, it could it could hear it it could feel it under the yeah. on the ground and, was, and they couldn't stop the elephant just made a beeline inland. Fascinating. Like we got a crazy elephant running away with the child, and it was saving saving the two of them. And elephants have interesting culture too. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, so weird when they find a dead elephant, like a skeleton, and they put yeah. their trunks all around the tusks, and they all stand around it and they touch it. Yeah. Yeah. Or the it's, way that they paint. Like a, yeah. Right. Or images people, of themselves. Or play jazz. Yeah. There's people that are out there playing free jazz with elephants. You know? Wow. <laughs> it's like my friend posted this on Facebook, and he's like, "I'm on level 77 on Candy Crush." And other people are playing free jazz with elephants. What have I done with my life? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When when there are let's say interspecies cooperation, those stories always um, brighten my day and make me yeah. smile yeah, and I feel my it. heart open. I love it. And, I you know, this sort of alchemy of species working together and yeah. creating something powerful from that bond. Yeah. If if, if I need to feel good, just go on YouTube and put, you know, yeah. unlikely animal pairs. Yeah, you know, like dogs you know. that'll save a cat from a freeway yeah. that's yeah. gotten hit already a couple of times and it picks it up or or you see the water buffalo saving a gazelle from being eaten by a tiger or a yeah. alligator. Crocodile, something yeah. like that, you know. Little glimmerings of altruism, like, you know, interspecies altruism. Yeah, yeah. That maybe could it's be very like, interesting. Just, like just a little uh, epiphenomenon of kind of consciousness arising, you know, where yeah. you least expect it. <laughs> the, the dog that had a relationship with the dolphin, remember that? Oh, yeah, The yeah, golden yeah. retriever that, yeah. or maybe it wasn't a retriever, but it was a golden mm-hmm. looking dog that would run every day, bolt from the master mm-hmm. and go to the docks every day, so excited to interact. Yeah. And the dolphin that would come back and wow. even let him ride on the dolphin's back. Wow, that's amazing. He would jump in the water to want to connect with the dolphin. The dolphin would give him yeah. rides and it was this wonderful relationship. Have, have you seen the uh, polar bears? That come with in to dogs. play with the dogs, <gasps> the sled dogs. Yes, yeah. amazing. These it's polar incredible. bears are some of the most dangerous animals on the planet. Yeah, and they're probably hungry. Yeah. And they come in and they play with the dogs and they, leave, they don't like hurt the dogs. Like the uh, Iditarod and Yukon yeah. Quest, like sled dogs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, Those dogs are amazing. You know, I used to live in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is the starting point of the Yukon Quest dog sled race, which is a thousand mile dog sled race, a thousand miles from Fairbanks to Whitehorse, which is in the Yukon Territory. And these dogs are so beautiful. And these guys have these just long, like, ice-crusted beards. And it's just, like, such an incredible feat. That's amazing. Fuck, man. I know. Gosh. That is amazing. They're still doing it. There's people that are, that's their thing. Wow. It probably really sucks to have to go to the bathroom when you're in the middle of that situation. You know, when it's that cold, you really, you, you, you just turn it off. You're like, you don't even, you know, it's fucking cold, whatever. It was cold. 60 degrees warmer it was still fucking cold as hell yeah and so what are you gonna do and you just it's like you've just become just it's just whatever yeah it's gonna take care of this it's like minus 12 versus you know 11 degrees what's the difference i mean right (laughs) i was not a happy camper when i had to 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 pee uh at the top of kilimanjaro believe me oh yeah what was the temperature up there i don't even know okay uh everything was yeah 
a blur at this point. It was just, I just know it was so freaking cold that I was in danger of getting frostbite and it was, it was painful. Oh, yeah, for sure. yeah, it was mm-hmm. very painful. I had to uh, many times remove my gloves and, and put them inside my, my uh, clothing because I, I needed to, to thaw them out because there was such pain. Mm, yeah. Uh, there's something about the cold though, you know, there's something about the North, like there's, uh, there's a, a member po- of the North. <laughs> yeah. There's a poet named, I think his name is Robert Service. Uh, he wrote a lot of poems about the North, like the Arctic, mm. you know, Alaska, like that kind of like sourdough, like Alaska guy. Mm-hmm. Just really, it kind of just gets me in the heart, you know, like, mm. oh, the North, the cold, the, the like the pristine beauty of it. Mm. The winter is coming. There's something, because there's something when it's fucking, when it's 70 below zero. Yeah. Okay, Fahrenheit. And it's been dark for months. There's just something about the quality of like the moonlight and the air. It's so quiet. It's the quietest you'll ever hear. Wow, when it's freezing cold. Yeah. Wow. Somehow it's, I don't know, it's just more quiet. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, everything is still, I'll bet. And the trees are all skeletal, covered in snow, you know. And the northern lights. If you haven't seen the northern lights, go to Alaska in the winter. Look at the sky. It's amazing. I want to do that. Yeah, no kidding. I don't want to be that cold, but I want to do that. <laughs> Could go on one of those Alaskan cruises during the winter. That's okay. possible. All right. Yeah, there we go. Of course, that would suck if they hit an ice cube, iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> but you could see the northern lights from a hot tub on, you the, could. on the deck of your cruise ship. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that would make it better or, or worse. You know, somehow the struggle and the hardship is part of it sometimes yeah mm. i'm partial to that as well i'm yeah, just yeah. i'm just saying yeah yeah it's true you've been listening to the authenticity show with your hosts carlos casados and satch purcell my name is Oliver Altine. I produce the show. I also wrote our theme song, which you're listening to right now. And the interstitial music this time is something I wrote on my baritone guitar. I call it Darkgasm. Pretty cool name, huh? Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. And you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thank you for listening and have an authentic day.